But hey, in the life of a church, I think uh, what we celebrate is really important. In fact, I kind of have this theory uh, about life that what we celebrate is ultimately what we become, the things that we uh, treasure, uh, the things that we delight in, or things that kind of mold us into the, the people that we'll be. Uh, and, and I think Jesus talks about that. He says, wherever your treasure is, that's also where your heart will be. And so the things you delight in seem to somehow get into the deepest recesses of your heart. And so uh, one of the things we're always doing is we're kind of looking for things to celebrate. We're kind of looking for uh, God on the move, and we want to be able to celebrate the things that uh, God is doing in us and through us and all around us. Now, I also have a second theory. Uh, the second theory I have is that I believe that it is a sin uh, to give God a golf clap. Now, if you, if you don't know what a golf clap is, uh, a golf clap is where like somebody in golf hits a super sweet shot, like maybe a hole in one, and like the best he gets is, and I'm like, if that's me, I want some hooting and some hollering. You know, I want a little happy Gilmore celebration on the sidelines. And so I just think when we celebrate what God's doing, I think it's a sin for us to give God a golf clap. As I read through scripture, I don't see ever a place where God does something really significant and the people are just like, way to go, God, way to go. So it can get a little bit rowdy in the house. You know, we can, we can be able to celebrate. But what we want to do today is we want to celebrate something that I think is really, really significant and really, really incredible. Uh, in fact, if you've been around uh, Redemption Church for a while, you've gotten to know uh, Todd and Tina. I mean, you guys have been around since almost the beginning, right? I mean, you've been around for a long time. Uh, in, the, in the short history, it's like you've been around forever, like under two years. Uh, but uh, after, I just want to give you a little bit of uh, insight into, into their lives. Uh, for the last two and a half years, uh, two and a half years of prayer and paperwork and waiting and anticipation on October 25th, uh, the courts affirmed what Todd and Tina already believed and felt in their hearts, that Anna really was their daughter. And their adoption became official. So we should celebrate that. No golf class. So I want to invite them to come up and bring Anna with you. Uh, and now, if you've been around Redemption Church, you've got to meet Anna. Anna is the one laughing and dancing, full of energy. Uh, when we met at Central Middle School, some of my favorite memories uh, were of Todd chasing her uh, after service. I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, if you could bottle the energy and excitement this little girl has, I would buy some of it because it is incredible. And so uh, one of the things we want to do is we want to celebrate the adoption because we believe adoption is at the very, uh, the very center of the heart of God. In fact, it's been a joy for us as a church to pray for them and watch them and get to know them. And Romans chapter 12, 15 says that we should rejoice with those who rejoice. And so today we want to celebrate them and honor them and honor what God is doing in their lives. And so we want to bless them. And I'm going to ask you, as we pray for them this morning, I'm just going to ask you to pray with me. And maybe if, I know sometimes like we like to keep our hands down and we don't want to get too charismatic or outgoing to church, but I'm going to ask you just to put your hand up in the air so that they can see you. Just kind of point your hand toward them so they know that they're praying for them. This is also a great photo opportunity for anybody with a smartphone. Uh, but would you join me as we, uh, as we pray for these guys? Uh, God, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus. And God, we thank you so much that you have the heart of a father. Jesus, you told us that whoever welcomes a child in your name receives not only you, but the one who sent you. So God, I thank you for the love that Todd and Tina have for Anna. I thank you for this adoption. I pray that in this process, as they celebrate, as it's been finalized, God, I pray that not only do they receive her, but they receive you and your father 
in your spirit. God, we pray that as Anna grows, she would know the love of Jesus by recognizing the deep love her mom and her dad have for her. We thank you for the Christ-like love, for their willingness to sacrifice, for their willingness to go long and hard to make her their very own. God, as a church, we believe that we're all on a journey together. And God, we believe that life is meant to be done together. We celebrate today your faithfulness towards Todd and Tina and Anna. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen them, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that they may always know that you are with them, that you are for them, and that they have a church that loves them, and they are never, ever alone. Father, today we come before you and we celebrate what you're doing, what you have done. And as a church, it's our privilege and our joy to see what you're going to continue to do in their lives. So God, we pray blessing and favor upon this family. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We love you guys. We're thankful for you. Yeah. yeah. High five. Hey, high five. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> love it. Thanks, brother. We love you guys. Hey, give them one more uh, round of applause. That's okay. It's supposed to get rowdy. All right. Well, hey, uh, we're going to, if there's any more kids in here, we're going to release the kids to children's ministry. Uh, and in the process, I'd love to have you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, I have lost count uh, how long we've been in the book of Ephesians, but it's safe to say we've been in there for a while. And so uh, today we're going to wrap up our series in Ephesians uh, as we prepare to get ready for uh, the Christmas season here next week. We're going like full-fledged into Christmas, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, but one of the things that, that I was really thinking about today is, is we had the opportunity to honor and celebrate what God is doing and has done in the Berkstrom's life is this idea of adoption. You know, really, when you, when you think about adoption, what really happens is when a child is adopted, a child moves from one family permanently into another family. In fact, I was just doing some studying and some research this week that they talk about the process of adoption like this. It says adoption is where all parental rights are legally transferred from one parent to another, meaning now they have all the legal rights and responsibilities to care for their new child. It also means in the life of the child that they now have all the emotional, social, legal, and familial benefits of a new family. And what's really, really interesting is when you think about adoption, adoption is at the very center of the heart of God. In fact, sometimes we don't think of it maybe as much as we should. But when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the fact that God loves us and cares for us so much, that he would look at us and see us in our sin and our rebellion, and that he would send his son Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, holy, 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 perfect, who would die on the cross in our place for our sin, who would rise on the third day victorious over Satan's sin and death so that we might have forgiveness, new life, and inheritance, but that we would also be adopted into the family of God, that we would become sons and daughters of God, that salvation includes the process of adoption. In fact, I love the way that Paul says it in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That salvation includes adoption. And we want to really get this this morning, because I think if we don't understand this, we begin to miss out on what Paul's going to continue to say to us in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. And so I just kind of want to highlight this for us this morning. I want to talk about it briefly because it is so deep and it is so meaningful. We could spend hours, if not days, if not weeks, just trying to comprehend this idea. But the reality is, is that when God adopts us, we're adopted spiritually. That is, if you read all throughout the, the scriptures, what happens is, is we're dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses. There's places in scripture that say that we're children of wrath, children of disobedience. And so spiritually we're adopted that we're made alive in Christ. That we're no longer sons of disobedience or sons of wrath. That we become the very sons of God. That there's something deeply significant and spiritual that happens in our lives. In fact, as you read all through the New Testament, you see this idea of being born again, receiving a new heart, a new nature. And all of that is tied to the fact that we now have a new father. And because we have a, a new father, that we would become like him. And so spiritually, we're adopted, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That one of the ways you could look at that is the adoption papers are signed and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that is the Holy Spirit resides in us. He resides as a, a sign and is a seal in our lives that we belong to our Father. And it's significant because the scriptures say that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in us. That our powerful father gives his sons and daughters his powerful spirit because we're adopted spiritually. We're also adopted relationally. That in the Old Testament, if you really look at the Old Testament, there's kind of this idea that people that have a relationship with God, it's kind of a far-off relationship. In fact, the heroes of the Old Testament are often the ones that have the intimate relationship with God. But that relationship with God is often approached by fear and trembling. Uh, this idea that, that God is this big cosmic ruler who we can get close to, but we can't get that close to. In fact, if you even look at the temple system that there were different walls and different phases and you could get so close to God, but only one person could get into the holy of holies, the great high priest. And yet in the New Testament, as Jesus is beginning to talk to people about who God is and how to relate to him, Jesus says, you know how you should relate to God? He's your heavenly father. When the disciples ask Jesus, how do we pray? He goes, it's simple. You say, Abba. Hey, Dad. Hey, Heavenly Father, can I talk to you? Can I make some requests of you that God is not an idea or a force, that he is a father? And that relationally, that we can take comfort and joy and hope in knowing that like a good father, he would care for us. That Jesus talks about if earthly fathers can be good and give good gifts, and how much greater is our Heavenly Father? 
That Jesus would even say things like, this is how much he cares for you, that he already knows what you need before you ask him, that he's so concerned about you that he knows the number of hairs on your head, that if God cares for a sparrow, how much more would he care for you? Now, I know that hair on the head thing trips you out because if you're like me, it's real easy. For some of you, that's a little more difficult. But we're adopted spiritually, and then we're adopted relationally, but then we're also adopted legally. That if you really read throughout the Gospels, that there's this idea of justification would be the big biblical word. That means that legally, one day we will stand before God, and we'll have to give an account for our lives. And because we've been saved by faith through grace, when Jesus resides in our hearts, what happens is we're forgiven for our sins, but we receive his righteousness. So that one day when we stand before God, God doesn't see us, he sees Christ in us. It means I don't have to be perfect because Christ is my perfection. It means I don't have to try to earn God's love because Christ did that for me. And that legally, we are co-heirs with Christ. It means we have an inheritance. It means just like legally in this life, that when your parents pass, if they have the right legal documentation, they pass things on to you as an inheritance. And what the scripture tells us is that because Jesus has an inheritance, he shares that inheritance with us. Things like forgiveness of sins. Things like the Holy Spirit residing inside of us. Things like the power that Christ had, he gives to us. Things like the hope of eternity, the kingdom of God. They're all ours because we have a legal standing now that we've been adopted legally. Now, you might ask the question, why would God do this? Like, why would God not only save us, but why would he also adopt us? And the answer, why it's simple, is really profound. It's because he's good. It's because that's at his heart. It's because he loves us. That's the kind of God he is. And he has the heart of a father. You see, to really dive into Ephesians chapter 5 this week, we really got to have to capture this big identity statement. It, this is our last one in the book of Ephesians. It's this one, I am adopted by God. That I am adopted by God. Because we jump into Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, you, you see this right away, and I want you to see this. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So well, how do I become a beloved child? Because he's adopted us through Jesus. In fact, look at the language of family, of, of father and child. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love is Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, and us to God. And what Paul begins to use is this language like, hey, you know when like a little kid mimics and imitates their father? Like you're invited to do that. That as you know your heavenly father because you've been adopted. You just get to mimic and imitate him. I know when I was a kid, I would sneak into the bathroom and steal my dad's aftershave. And it stung, but it smelled good. And I just wanted to be like him. And he says, listen, it's this kind of relationship that you have that you can imitate your father. In fact, the word imitate there means to follow, to pattern after, or to show a model of, to appear like or resemble to produce a copy of. That we can have this 
childlike relationship with our Heavenly Father where we can not only know Him, but as we know Him, we can become like Him. Now, this is really, really important and really, really significant because what Paul does next is he's telling us about imitating our Heavenly Father as adopted children. He, he begins to talk to us about walking wise and then what he does is he gives us two really big lists. And see, if we miss the adopted part, we miss the significant of the list. And before we think about it, like before we really get into the list, I want you to think about it this way. Every single family is guided by rules, values, and practices that are significant to your family. There are certain things that your family does, certain things that your family values, and certain things that your family enforces and reinforces that other families do not. It's one of the things that makes you unique as a family. In fact, I want you to think for a second about your own family. What would that be for you? What are some of your rules? What are some of your values? Or what are some of the things you enforce or reinforce that maybe other people don't? Now, if you're a teenager or a child in the room, the things that your parents enforce and reinforce that you think aren't fair are those things. Because your, com your complaint is always, but my friends get to. And your parents always say, but your friends don't live in my house. And if you were growing up, you remember that. There were certain things your parents did, said, or enforced that you went, Oh, why do we do this? Or there were things that you really, really enjoyed. And there were those kind of things. What kind of things were those for your family? In fact, as I was preparing for the message this week, I opened up Facebook and I just threw out the question. And I said, hey, what, what kind of things growing up did your family value and force? And I got all kinds of answers. It was awesome. Stuff from like weekly pizza nights, which I think is awesome. Well, somebody told me that their family had a rule that you couldn't leave the kitchen table until your plate was clean. And I thought, not too bad, except he said that also was true for liver and onion night and beef tongue night. And his response was, lots of ketchup and lots of time. And I thought, that doesn't sound like a value, that sounds like torture. Like, I know for me growing up, we spent a lot of time with a family, and they had this rule that there was a living room that no child could go in. It was, like, forbidden. And so I remember, like, the first time I got invited into that room, like, I was graduating high school, and they invited me to the room, and I didn't know what was going to happen. Like, for years, I thought it was this mystical place where no child could go, and then I got invited in, and I was kind of like, I don't know if I want to. I don't know what happens beyond this point. Some people talked about they had a relative with a plastic couch, you know, plastic over the couch, and no kid could sit on the plastic couch. I remember couches with plastic on them, and I thank God they're not around anymore. Uh, we have really good friends who move a lot and work a lot, and, and they go travel all over the place, but they have a tradition in their family that no matter where they are in the world, on Christmas Eve, they always eat Chinese food. Like, that's just their thing. Like every Christmas Eve, it's Chinese night. And see, the reason I bring that up for you is because I think what Paul is talking to us about are values, I think they're rules, and I think they're things that are enforced in the family of God. 
That just like in your own family, you have things that you value, that you reinforce, rules that you have, that God says, hey, because you're my children, here's, here's some things. There's some things that we value. There's some things that we should do, and there's some things that we shouldn't do. And the only reason we should value these things, the only reason we should do them, or the only reasons we shouldn't do them, is because God is our Father. And as the Father, He determines what's best for us. He determines the boundaries that we set in our lives. So we're going to read a bunch of scripture, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 21. They're on the screen. So I'm going to turn around and read them and try to stay out of the way. And he says this. So Paul's saying, hey, remember your beloved children. Imitate your father. Walk as Jesus walked. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We keep going. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And we'll keep going, verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We keep going to verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now we're going to take all of those verses, and there's two lists. And the first list we're going to talk about is the do not list. And so if you take all that scripture and kind of pick out the do nots, there's six of them. And what Paul says is, hey, as children of God, Here's some of the values, the rules, and the boundaries. He says, listen, uh, do not engage in sexual immorality or impurity. He says, that's off limits to you. Like, because you're my children and because what I desire, what's best for you. When you think about things like sex and purity, I have a plan, and it's good for you. It's my way. It's not the world's way. And sometimes we want to know, well, what does it mean in the Greek? Well, the Greek means just stop it. To stay away from those things. It says, do not engage in covetousness, just always being jealous, always desiring more, never being pleased with what you have, always looking to what your neighbor or friends has. 
It says, never participate in filthiness, filthiness, foolish talk, or crude humor. And I think, just for a second, guys, we struggle with this more than the ladies, probably. That there's that idea of locker room talk. That when we guys get alone, they can just talk about whatever and say whatever. And God the Father says, no, 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 not, not with my kids. It's off limits. If people go there, you can't go with them. In fact, he, he continues, he says, associate with sinful behavior. Now, I want you to read this clearly. He doesn't say, do not associate with sinful people. We're called to do that. But he says, not with sinful behavior. When people take that step, you go, hey, I love you, but I can't go there with you. Like, hey, that's just off limits to me. And my, my heavenly father says, no. Take parks in the works of darkness. Because he says, to do the exact opposite. He says, don't partake in darkness, but expose it. He says, hey, don't get drunk. You go, but why? But he says, because as your father, I have some boundaries, some limits, some values, some truths for your lives. And God draws the line for us. And says, hey, wherever that line is, be careful. Because if you go too far, it's sin. Now, when the scriptures say these things, do not, right? When they say do not, because here's the thing. Odds are when you see a list like that, there might be some of us in the room that look at that screen and go, I'm doing some of those things. Like there's a few things up there that maybe, mm, like is there wiggle room? How much gray area? How close can I get? And here's what you have to understand. Every single one of those do nots comes from a heavenly father who loves you. In fact, you could take it a step further. Those do's and do nots come from the creator and author of life, the God who created all things. Like everything on that list that you could abuse, God invented. It was his idea. It was God that created the world. It was God that created the plants and the animals in it. It was God that created man and woman. It was God who created the idea of sex, relationship, and marriages. And so we have to know that this isn't just like, oh, the Bible says this comes from the heart of God. This comes from the scriptures, which are the God-breathed, inspired word, sharper than a double-edged sword. That it comes from the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is also our Heavenly Father. And see, the reason that this can be a struggle for us is sometimes we think that our parents growing up had rules and regulations in our lives because they wanted to prevent us from having fun. And what happens is I think as you grow older, you begin to realize, right, that they weren't trying to keep you from having fun. They were trying to prevent you from falling into certain traps and troubles and injuries and harm and the process of having certain types of fun. And see, what I call it is this. I call it the cookie jar syndrome. Now, if you kind of imagine, and maybe it's been a while, but if you kind of imagine a kitchen where there's cookies being freshly baked, I'm talking freshly baked, out of the mixer, into the spoon, nice little round balls in the cookie sheet. See, now I'm going there. I'm talking that chocolate aroma fill in the house. Maybe it's peanut butter for you. That's okay. You know, whatever that is. And see, what happens is, is when that aroma starts to fill the air, right, you're drawn to the kitchen. See, if you're like me, I try to get there in the cookie dough phase because I like the cookie dough. But what happens is, is we all have the cookie jar syndrome. So what happens is when the cookies cool off and get put in the cookie jar, we're instantly tempted. We're even more tempted if we're told, stay out of the cookie jar. 
right? Like if your mother or your wife or whoever made the cookies said to you, hey, you can't have these. These are for a friend or a neighbor, or we're going to take those to church on Sunday for the snack table. You're instantly like, but I need to test one. I need to try one. You begin to think, well, will she really notice if I take one out? Right? Will, she, will they really miss that one? Right now, this is true. This is true beyond the cookie jar, but I, I like to call it the cookie jar syndrome. For some of you, this happened on Thanksgiving, right? Why the cooking was going on in the kitchen. You went in for samples. Like you thought it was the big box store. And so you thought you could go in and just take little samples along the way. And some of you, any of you have to kick somebody out of the kitchen this Thanksgiving and say, hey, you have to get out of here. Did that happen? So, yeah, see, there was one over there. But uh, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's, here's why this is important. Because we're always drawn to the cookie jar, especially when we believe that there is something good and yummy and delicious in the cookie jar. But what happens is God tells us, hey, there's certain cookie jars your hands just shouldn't go in. There's certain things that you should just avoid. You might think they're yummy. You might think they're delicious. You might have friends that think they're yummy. You might have friends that think they're delicious. But God says, hey, because I'm your heavenly father, like I want you to keep your hands out of certain cookie jars. And you go, why? And it's because God is trying to protect us. And what happens is, is once we get our hand in the cookie jar, it's really hard to fight the temptation. In fact, there's an old, old story about a woman who was baking cookies. And then she put the cookies once they cooled down in the cookie jar. And she went into the other room and she told her children, keep your hands out of the cookie jar. Like a wise mother, she left the room, but she didn't go too far from the kitchen. And a few minutes went by and she heard the lid of the cookie jar open. And like a wise mother, she called out and she said, kids, what are you doing in the kitchen? And her oldest son cried back, mom, my hand's in the cookie jar, but I'm fighting temptation. <laughs> and see, the reality is, is we have trouble once we get our hands in the cookie jar. And see, our loving Heavenly Father says, hey, because I love you, because I created all things and I might know more than you know. There are certain things that I just want you to avoid. Because why we might think we're reaching in for a yummy cookie, but we could be reaching into as a trap. We could be reaching into something that's not a cookie, but it could be something that harms us, something that will hurt not only us, but those around us. Things that might taste good initially, but will eventually kill our souls, devastate our loved ones, destroy our reputations, and cause serious damage. So see, when God says do not, he's not trying to kill our joy. He's not trying to prevent us from experiencing things. I think this is what happens. I think it's the heart of a father saying, hey, in my family, there's some things that we value, some things that we enforce, some rules that we have, but it's for your good. It's for your protection. It's for your welfare. And God says, hey, there's not only things that I don't want you to do, there's some things I want you to do. Like just like a, a good parent would say things like eat your vegetables and brush your teeth and get your homework done and go to bed on a good time, things that maybe we don't always want to enjoy but are ultimately good for us, God gives us another list. And he says, here's some things I want you to do. And he gives us 10 of them. 
He says, I want you to imitate God. He goes, whenever you're, in, if you think of it this way, if you're ever in a situation where you don't know what to do, the question we should ask is, what would Jesus do? And I know that sounds cliche. I know that that train has left the station. I know there's bracelets and posters and websites. But seriously, here's the question. If I don't know what to do, how can I imitate Jesus in this situation? It means to walk in love. It means to walk as children of light. It means to have an authentic life. When he talks about walking in love and walking in light, it means are you in true, authentic relationship with other people? Do you have a place where you can go where you can tell people the truth about your life, the truth about your struggles, the truth about what you're feeling? And like for us, that's like where that's what happens in our community groups. When we gather in circles and, and do life together, as we learn more about each other and learn to trust one another, that's a place where you go, hey. Here's what's going on in my life. Hey, here's what I'm struggling with. Hey, here's some prayer requests that I have. Four, he says, discern what pleases God. It means that we don't live our lives trying to figure out, God, what do I want to do? And then will you bless it? That's how most of us approach the will of God. Hey, I know what I want to do. Now, God, would you just approve what I want to do? He says, no, as children, we should say, God, what do you want for me? God, what's your will? That our prayer should be like Jesus' prayer. Jesus, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, walk is wise. That in, in this world, there's some things that are sinful and some things that are just stupid and foolish. He says, avoid the stupid and foolish things. Be careful of the things you expose yourself to. Be, ex- be careful about the hobbies you have. Be careful about the people that you surround yourself with. Because he says, number six, make the best use of your time. Are you making good use of your time or are you wasting your time? Is your time building the kingdom? Or is your time just doing useless stuff? Just be filled with the Spirit. We would have such a relationship with God that the Holy Spirit wouldn't be grieved or resisted, but that we would be in the ebb and flow of the life and the works of the Spirit within us. He says, sing in passionate worship to God. Uh, the Greek there means sing in passionate worship to God. And so we don't always like to do that. But he says that there's something about being in the family of God that we should sing and praise, that our gathering should be loud, that it's okay to sing even off key, that it's good for us. And then I think there's something really, really significant that happens when we gather together and we can sing songs to God, about God, and for God. Because he says this, give thanks. The giving thanks is really an attitude. The giving thanks means I have to be aware of the things in my life to be thankful for. It means I spend time asking the question, what should I be thankful for? And then saying, God, thank you. Instead of just assuming that I deserve it all, that we could just thank God for all that he's done, for all that he's doing, for all the things we have to be grateful of. It says, number 10, submit to one another. That, that we would have mutual respect for one another that I wouldn't just care about me and you wouldn't just care about you, but that we would care about one another. And that we would submit ourselves to one another and do life together. 
Now, here's why this adoption thing is so important. If we're not careful with this, what happens is we end up with a moralistic list of things to do and not to do. Like if we handle this scripture poorly, I think what happens is, is we go, you have one list of six and one with 10. Now grade yourself. How are you doing? And I don't think that's necessarily the point. See, I think here's the question. The question isn't on a scale of 1 to 10, how are you doing on this list? The question is this, how is your relationship with your heavenly father? So I think what Paul's getting at is if, if we've been adopted, if we know God is father, then it's like that, that adage, like father, like son. Are you becoming more like him? Do you value the things that he values? Do you love the things that he loves? Are you pursuing him because you can't pursue God and sin at the same time? And so the question isn't, are you moral? The question isn't, are you good? The question is, how is your relationship with God, your father? What's it look like? Do you love the things he loves? Are you valuing the things that he values? Are you becoming more like him? And you go, how am I supposed to do all of that? Like, how do I go from doing the do nots to the do's? I think the good news of the gospel is that Jesus accomplishes it with us. That he gives us the power. That the reality is, is the only reason to do the do's and the only reasons to get off the do not list is because we understand that we've been saved and adopted and we belong to God and have a relationship with him. That we rejoice in the fact that we've been adopted. We rejoice in who God is and what he values and what his truth says. And see, I think what we have to really focus on, I think what we really have to get are these three things. That number one, we've been adopted into a new identity. And see, what happens when he makes that do not list, what he says is, this is the things that the sons of disobedience do. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, you go, well, I'm not a son of disobedience. I'm a son of God. I've been adopted into a new family. Formerly, I was a son or daughter of rebellion, but because of Jesus... Because of his life and his death and his resurrection, I'm now a dearly loved child of light. And the Holy Spirit resides in me. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in me. So when I have the option to do or do not, I'm going to choose do because the power of the Spirit resides in me. I don't have a spirit of timidness or weakness, but he's given me a spirit of power. But God has given us the ability not to be overcome by darkness, not to be overcome by sin, that as a child of God, we have choices and options. It means when we encounter scriptures like these, it means we respond with childlike faith, not childish faith, childlike faith. That we say, hey, Father, if that's what you believe, hey, Father, if that's what's good, hey, Father, if that's what you say, then I trust you. Then even though the world says, and even though before, and you know, hey, this might be new for me. Hey, Father, I, I trust you. And it's going to be your way and not my way. See, the question is, is, are we in a loving relationship with God? Or are we in a rebellious relationship with God? Where we, we hear what he says, but we choose to do otherwise. See, if we really want to get this, and I think we have to realize our identity as adopted children 
of God. The second one is this. We've been adopted into a new family. And I absolutely love this because if we go back to Ephesians chapter 5, 2, it's about us, but it's not just about us, right? And walk in love as Christ loved us. He doesn't say as Christ loved you. He says Christ loved us. It's plural. He's talking about the church. He's saying, yeah, God loves you, but he loves all of you, the church. And walk in love as Christ loved us, that's plural, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice for us. And he says, listen, if you've been adopted by God, then you have a brand new family that you've been saved and you've been adopted, that Jesus rose in victory, conquering Satan, sin, and death so that you could be reconciled to your father, but so also you could be reconciled to one another. And that we're supposed to do this together as family. It means that the church is a lot of things, but mainly it's a family. And that's my heart for our church, that we would mainly be a family. This would be a place that we feel like family one another, that we have God the Father, Jesus our big brother, and we are the church, God's family. Now that means some things. It means it won't always be easy. Being family is not always easy. It means that not, you won't like everyone. And it means not everyone will like you. It means that sometimes people will annoy you. It means like just in every family, there's chores to do, there's bills to be paid, but it's always family, that you're always home, you're never alone, that you always have people who love you and care for you and who are willing to go the extra mile with you. And that the only way we can do this is in community, Christ-like community, where we come together as brothers and sisters. And the last one is this, we're adopted to worship. Now, I want to camp out on this one for, for just a minute because I think Paul gives us an illustration that we probably miss. He says, and do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I want you to see this real quick. If you think about a place where people gather together, to drink alcohol, and then as they gather and as they drink, things tend to get loud. Things tend to get lots of conversation going, right? And God forbid there might be even karaoke, okay? So if you think about an average bar on Friday night, odds are there's lots of alcohol, there's a lot of people talking, there's a lot of relationship happening, there's music, singing, and some really bad karaoke happening. Do you know why that is? Because everybody secretly wants to be a Christian. Because God has designed us for that. God has designed us to be together. God has designed us to gather together, not to do life alone. God has designed us not to be filled with wine, but to be filled with the Spirit. And he's designed us that when we gather, we should celebrate and sing and make loud noise. And that's what I think Paul is referencing to the church in Ephesus. He's going, listen, don't get drunk on wine for that's debauchery. You know what happens when people get together. You know what happens when the party gets started and somebody cracks a cold one. It's loud and there's lots of music and there's karaoke happening. And he says, but listen, in the church, be filled with the Spirit. 
and address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make a melody to the Lord. Give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we are made in the image and likeness of God to be filled with the Spirit, to sing songs, and to do life in relationships. That even when life is hard, we can gather together and still be thankful. Maybe not for what's happening around us, but we can be thankful that Jesus died for us and rose for us. And God is still our Father and He is good. It means worship is an action. It means part of our worship is when we love and when we serve and when we care, when we bear with one another. That worship isn't just singing. Worship is the way we also treat one another. And that worship is also up. It's adoration that we sing and we make music and we make noise, giving thanks to God that we enjoy him, that we take delight in his goodness. And that Paul actually said it's like a fragrant offering. It's like a really good candle being lit in your home that fills all the rooms in your home. It's like that cookie going in the oven. It starts in the kitchen and it goes to all the rooms. But when we gather and we sing, it's like God in heaven goes, what is that? What's that aroma? And he goes, that's my people gathering, being filled and singing. It means worship encourages us. See, this is why church can't be a podcast or an online video. It's more than that. That when we gather together, when you can look across the room and see a brother who's worshiping in the midst of trouble, you can go, man, if, if that guy can worship, then surely I have things to worship. That when you, you see somebody who can delight in the Lord and you go, listen, I need whatever they got, I need some of that. That when you see the guy who, who comes in to church with a Bible in his hand and it looks like he can take down a tree without an axe and wrestle a bull to the ground, but that man has a tender heart for Jesus, that it teaches us that, hey, maybe I can be manly and still love Jesus and have a tender heart. That our worship actually encourages one another. That in the process of worshiping, that we actually make one another better. So here's my question as we close out our time together. Are you adopted? Have you been adopted by God the Father through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Have those papers been signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit? If not, then maybe today's the day. Like maybe that's the whole reason God brought you here today is just because he wanted to tell you that he loves you. And his heart for you is that like a father. And that he cares for you. He desires a relationship with you so that you might experience him, his joy, his life, and his salvation. Have you been adopted today? And if you haven't, maybe today's the day. If you are adopted, then I don't want to close our time together. I want to send us out. I love that Pastor Steve said that next week. We never close a service. We just send people out. And if you're adopted, then maybe this is the blessing for you today. 
If you're adopted by God the Father, then may you rejoice in the goodness of your heavenly Father. Like a child imitates their parent, may you follow and be like your heavenly Father. May you walk in love and in joyful obedience by the Holy Spirit, praising God and giving him the glory forever and ever. Amen.